Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. I'd like to look at the chart that says the moral law and its consequences. And this is taken from Romans 2, verses 4 through 11. And you can read that at another time. We won't take time to read that. Now, God has the law. This is the eternal law of God, which is called the law of love. And the law of love is based on truth. It's based on what is real. It's based on what is what is really there. And God sees eternally lived by the law of love. All of the Old Testament law that we're going to look at a little bit of tonight, all of the Old Testament law it, it is just a it, it, what, what was part of the eternal law written down and applied to a certain point in history. See, God, when he, when he created Adam and Eve, he just didn't come up with a right way to live, but that way of living is, is, is as eternal as God is. And it's the objective standard of truth, the, the law of love. Now, God gave man a free choice. He gave man the ability to either choose to follow him or to choose to not follow him. And God gave man free choice because he didn't want to be served by some little robots where God would just wind up our cranks and we'd walk around the earth going, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, glory to God, yes, Lord, we'll do what you want. He didn't want a bunch of robots. He wanted free moral beings that would freely respond to him, that would, out of their volitional choice, say, God, I want to serve you. And when you give a person the option of saying yes, then there's always the other option of them saying no, isn't there? In a love relationship, there's always the risk of betrayal, isn't there? That's, as, you know, it's just like as, as sweet as love is, there's always the opposite end of betrayal and, um, you know, all of the negative things. There has to be both those possibilities or otherwise there isn't truly a free choice. And so God created us with free choice. And so we are responsible for the choices that we make. And it's God's intent that we love and serve him on the basis of who he is. And kind of the, one of the comforting things to me as I've pondered this is that the people that want to go to heaven will be in heaven. And the people that don't want to be there, God's not going to make them go there either. They'll be in another place that the scripture calls hell. And it's all determined by the choices that we make. God has made it so that if we obey the law of love and walk in obedience, then he rewards us for that. Now, He, God is no respecter of person. Anyone who walks in obedience to him he rewards. Anyone who walks in disobedience to him, there are certain penalties or or, or sanctions against walking in truth. And, and this is the law of sowing and reaping that we touched on when we talked about the justice of God. Whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. And so if we sow obedience, then we're going to reap the rewards. But if you sow disobedience, then you're going to reap the penalties. And I want to go through this list tonight in order to, to give you a better sense of what it means to obey God and to disobey God. You see, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just a theological thing that happened. I mean, it just wasn't a, 
a religious thing that Adam and Eve sinned. But when they disobeyed God, very real things happened to them as human beings. They were separated from God, not just because all of a sudden God was mad and he said, God, God, I told you not to eat of the tree. Why'd you do that for? And ah, get out of here, you bunch of rascals. See, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was that in order for man to have a relationship with God, he had to abide in the truth. And if he disobeyed the tr- the law of love, if he disobeyed God's one single commandment of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then by his choice, he separated himself and he took a step into the darkness. See, it's more than just a theological problem, this issue of sin, but it's a very real problem. There cannot be right relationship without truth. And that's going back to the principles we talked about last week. In order for there to be love and trust, there has to be an adherence to truth and playing by or living life by the eternal law of love. See, it's more than just a theological thing, but it's as eternal as God is. Now let's look at the contrasting rewards and penalties. God said, if you obey me, you will have life. He says, if you disobey me, then you'll have death. And rather than being a, um, a cessation to live, rather than ceasing to live, death means separation and isolation. So when you t- we talk about eternal life, eternal life is being in right relationship with God forever. Eternal death is not ceasing to exist, but it's ceasing to be in right relationship with God or in, with anyone else. The reward of obedience is creativity. And God has given each one of us a creative ability, hasn't he? But when that is used and when we disobey God's moral law, then that becomes destruction. Instead of life, it becomes destructive. Or creative, it becomes destructive. The example of of nuclear power. Nuclear power, some people think nuclear power can be used for creative uses. I know there's people, some people that don't think nuclear power has any place. But perhaps nuclear power can be used for creative benefits. But it also can be harnessed to destroy and, and wreak the most havoc that any weapon man has ever concocted. And so when it's used according to the law of love, it'll bring life. But when it, it's used against man and when it's used for selfish means, then it brings destruction into God's universe. The reward of obedience is dependence. The reward of, or the curse of disobedience is independence. The reward of obedience, number four, is desire fulfilled. If you obey God and put him first in your life, you're going to experience fulfillment. The proverb 13.12 says that desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And the only way we'll be ever satisfied is that we follow God fully. Proverbs 27.20 says that the eyes of man are never satisfied. And that's the way it is with a man that is not serving God. He will never be satisfied because he, he, the, the possibility of being satisfied can only be found in God. You know the saying that says the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence? That, that's an illustration of that. Always that wanderingness, that desire to find fulfillment and always going to the other side of fence and never finding it. But then you say, oh, maybe over that fence. And so they go over in that pasture and maybe I'll find green grass there. And you never find it. And that's the way a man without God is. When we walk in obedience to God, number five, we find cosmos. And that word means order and design. When we walk in obedience to the Lordship of Christ, we find order and design in the universe. When we walk in disobedience and when we do our own thing, we find chaos. 
And that's where we find randomness. And Jesus said that we are all gods. And when everybody tries to be God, what do you, what do you have? You have an eternal war, don't you? Everybody's fighting against each other. And that's been the story of history throughout the ages. When we walk with God in obedience, we find peace. And that's, that's and that another synonym for that would be rest. When we walk in disobedience, we find guilt. See, another thing, guilt is not just a theological issue, but guilt is very real. When we disobey God's moral law, we reap the consequence of guilt. And people use pills, alcohol, and drugs, and they try to drown out the voice of guilt, and they're never able to do, never able to do it. Even people commit suicide, hoping forever to escape this life. They only die only to reemerge in another state, in, 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 the, in the spiritual state, unchanged in their personality, because you cannot escape guilt. We walk in obedience, we find joy. We walk in disobedience, we find depression. We walk in obedience, we find freedom, and that's the capacity to give. Freedom is the capacity to give. If we walk in disobedience, we find ourselves in bondage, and that's the capacity to take. Nine, if we walk in obedience, we find we, we get privileges and we get to be fully human. You know, a man in relationship with God is, is the most fully human being there is. To be fully human is to walk with God. If we disobey God, we lose our privileges and we find ourselves captured by the hardness of sin. So we lose our privileges and God has to limit our privileges. It's like a criminal, a criminal who, who commits heinous acts and acts against society and acts against the moral law as well as the civil law, they eventually have to put him in prison, don't they? And they take away his privilege of freedom because he proves himself unworthy to function in society. That's the way the judgment day eternally will be. God will put away and banish from the society of heaven all those who refuse to do right. And all moral criminals will be put away in an isolation ward so that they won't spoil the beauty and the harmony of heaven. We walk with God, we find health. We disobey God, we find sickness. We walk with God, we find purpose to life. If we, do, if we disobey God, life has no meaning and everything becomes futility. If you want to read a book on futility, read the book of Ecclesiastes. When I first became a Christian, I loved that book because my life had, had so much futility in it before I met Jesus. And I really could identify with uh, the writings of Solomon. and You might want to read that if you haven't read that book recently. Number 12 is meaning. If we walk with God, if we disobey God, we find despair. If we walk with God, we find relationship. And if we disobey God, then we find isolation. This really sums up what God meant by eat of the tree of life. All of these synonyms, 1 through 13, are really synonyms of the tree of life. All of the ones under the disobedient column are really, this is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it's very important for us to understand that God, out of his heart of love, has given us commandments. And he said, obey what I've told you to do so that you might have life. Because God knows in the day that you sin against his eternal moral law, you'll reap the consequences. Just be, by, by the nature of, of going against truth, you'll reap the consequences. See, do you understand that it's not just because God's mad and he's going to get you back for disobeying him and making him mad? It's because you have broken the eternal law of love. And God's wise enough. He always lives 
on the right side of, 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 of the law of truth because he always lives by it. God is not so stupid as to sin because really to sin is to make an unintelligent choice. And God lives in light. He lives in an eternal love relationship with himself and with his creation. And that was his whole purpose in creating man. He was saying, obey the tree of life. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I can give you everything that I have purposed you to have. Remember that the law is given by the greatest heart of love in the whole universe. And so when God says, don't do this, remember, it's the, it's the heart cry of a loving father trying to keep you out of trouble. You don't see the danger signs. He does, and therefore he says, do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery, don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't covet, covet the things that your neighbor has, but honor the Lord always, serve and worship him only. So the whole essence of the Ten Commandments is not a God that's trying to keep you from having fun, but it's a God that's trying to give you maximum fulfillment. It's the evil one. It's Satan himself who tries to seduce you into disobeying God so that you end up destroying yourself through your own sin. A couple of scriptures really highlight this in Deuteronomy. and You really hear the heart cry of God in these scriptures. First one is De- Deuteronomy 4.1. As these sessions were recorded on cassette tape, some content might have been lost when the cassette was flipped over. We've been talking about the holiness of God. Remember, holiness is the one attribute of God that we have to understand by revelation. It's not possible to know the holiness of God apart from revelation. And as we look the first week at at what the holiness of God is, his awesomeness, his purity and innocence, and, and someone that's worthy of high esteem and honor. That's, 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 that has to come into our lives by power of the Holy Spirit. But as you receive a revelation of God's holiness, we are definitely changed. We are changed, as we said, from glory to glory. And, and that's one, one thing that we need to be asking the Lord for a, a, a continual revelation of is, Lord, show me your holiness. And, and our response to God's holiness is that we would learn to walk in the light, that we would learn to live honestly and openly before God first and then before our fellow man. And that's the fulfillment of, of what holiness is in our lives, is walking in a way that that is, is pure and holy and righteous. There's three responses to, to God's holiness that we looked at last week. One is that we need to hate evil. We need to have a hatred of that which God hates. Most of the time when we sin, we really love our sin and our evil, and therefore we do it because we do the things we like. And so what we need God to do is come and just revolutionize us so we hate the things that God hates. And we need to hate first what it does to God because sin injures and grieves the heart of God. Secondly, it injures man. It injures ourselves, and it deeply wounds and injures our fellow man. And the second response is we need to walk in light and humility. Humility is being open and honest. It's choosing to be known for who we really are. And then the third thing is our response to holiness is we need to do the things that please God. We need to do everything out of a heart that wants to please Jesus more than anything else. In 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 14, Peter has this to say about holiness. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14. Peter says, But the day of the Lord 
will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works shall be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the, the day of the looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. And Peter makes a contrast here. He says that the present heavens and earth are all going to be cleansed by fire. The first judgment that God brought on the earth was by water, and that was the flood of Noah. And the second cleansing that God is going to bring to the universe is a, is a judgment of fire. The, the word here, when it says God will everything will melt with intense heat. The word there is the Greek word atomize or from which we get the word atom. And so the picture that the the Greek gives is that God is going to take everything apart into its component parts. Uh, you know, the protons, neutrons, electrons, and what other, other particles there are. God's going to take everything apart and he's going to put it back together in a way that excludes all evil and unrighteousness. And, so, and Peter says, now because that cleansing is going to take place, he contrasts the things that are all, all temporary, and he says, therefore, you ought to live in such a way that your holiness and your godliness shines forth. Since all the ungodliness is going to be destroyed anyway, live in the purity of God. Live in the righteousness of God. And so Peter warns us about that, and he says, since everything's going to be destroyed, and all evil, see, is ultimately going to be swept up and put into the bottomless pit. And evil and sins, he will have no meaning in eternity. One day God's going to clean all the evil out of the universe and, and evildoers are going to be put aside in a prison. And all that is evil and all that man did out of a selfish and evil intent will be swept up and thrown into the, the garbage can of the bottomless pit, never to re be remembered again. And so that which is, is pure and righteous will endure forever. And that's what the scripture over and over warns us that we would give our lives to. In Exodus 29 and verse 43, Moses tells us this. Exodus 29 and verse 43. It says, And I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated there by my glory. And this is speaking of the tabernacle. And what God, God is saying is that as we enter into his presence, and remember in the Old Testament, they came through the sacrifice of animals, and it was the, the temple area was like a butcher shop, the shedding of blood, the burning of flesh, the, the presenting of offerings. It was a, it was a very ugly place to, to remind the people of the ugliness of sin, that sin it, sin demands the, uh, the, the shedding of innocent blood. That's what the whole animal sacrificial system it was a deterrent against further sinning. And God says that when you come and you come into the Holy of Holies and you place the blood of the lamb upon the mercy seat, God will meet with us and he'll have fellowship with us there. The holy God of the universe will have fellowship with us. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's a sign that God will trade, as it were, our unholiness and, and he will trade it for his holiness. 
And so in the, in, in the, the ultimate sense, which the New Testament shows us, see, Jesus has, has purchased us by his blood, and he has made us holy. It says in Hebrews that the, that the veil that once separated God from man, no man could go in there except the high priest once a year. The, the, temp, the, 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 the veil that was separating that has now been torn. And it's torn from top to bottom. God just took it and ripped it open and said, the way into my heart is now available. And so in the New Testament era, the way to God's heart, the fellowship with him is is totally made available because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we want to be consecrated by the glory of God. And God wants to set us apart to be the nation of God in the earth. See, we, we're to be the people of God, and we're not to get caught up in, in the ways that the world responds. We're not to get up and get caught in all the, the impurity and all of the, the whole trip that the world is on. But God calls us to be a separate nation, not separate from people, but separate in the way we live our lives. Because our lives are to be a reflection of the way Jesus is and his heart towards people. And boy, if you can catch a hold of that, life becomes a real exciting thing, being an ambassador for Christ. We're ambassadors of the living God, and not only of the living God, but we are able and we are capable of living the values of the age to come. See, eternity is already breaking into human history. That's what happened when Jesus came into earth. Eternity broke into human history. And ever since that time, eternity has been crashing into human history. And we're already living in eternity. See, we're already living resurrection life. We're already tasting of the powers of the age to come. We're already experiencing some of the things that, that God has ahead for us. And we're testifying to the world that that is true. It's a tremendous calling. We really need to lay a hold of that. Now, last week, we, we looked at the chart on the law of love. You remember that? The law of love and how man, because um, we're created in the image of God, we have a moral choice. And God himself lives by the law of love. See, God doesn't just arbitrarily say, well, you guys got to keep these rules and I'll just do what I want. But God himself lives by truth and love. The Trinity sees, lives in an, in an eternal love relationship. And when we obey God, there's certain rewards for obedience. And we looked at that chart of all the different rewards for obedience. And if we choose to disobey God, excuse me, then there's a penalty. And that penalty is is, is death, it's separation from God, it's pain, guilt, depression, that whole other list of negative things. And, and God rules in the sense that his truth always prevails. And either a person lives by what is right and reaps the reward, or he lives by what is wrong and he reaps the, the curse or the penalty for disobeying God. And that is meted out to every person in the world that's ever lived, that's meted out without any partiality, Christian or non-Christian. Those who live righteously will be rewarded appropriately. Those who sin will also be re- will be justly rewarded in that way. Now, there's a couple of points that I want to make here as an introduction to hell and this, this whole concept of eternal punishment. The first concept is that God is the moral governor of the universe. You think of God as the moral governor. He's, he's not a moral dictator. In other words, he doesn't coerce people into submission. How many of you know that God's got a big stick? God's got a real big stick. And wouldn't it be awful if God coerced us into obeying him? Just think what he could do. Just think of Hitler with unlimited power. What kind of a hell that would be. 
And see, God, although he does have unlimited power, no limit to his power, he always uses his power in a lawful way and in a loving way. And that means that he doesn't violate our free will. But God, his, his responsibility is to govern the universe. And he's responsible to regulate the universe for the good of all. So that's, that's the first principle. That's God's, God's responsibility as God. He's responsible to regulate the affairs of men for the good of all. The second principle is that man is created in God's image. Man is created in God's image. And because we are created in God's image, we form our own destiny. See, God has given us a free will. And we are responsible and we're able to respond. You can hyphenate the word, word responsible into two words, response hyphen able, which means you're able to respond. And God has made us able to respond. And because we're significant creatures, God holds us responsible for the choices that we make. Therefore, we form our destiny when we obey God or when we disobey God. We have a will and God will not manipulate it. That's one of the awesome things about God is I've studied and looked at the scripture as powerful and as tremendous a being that God is. He will never manipulate a man's will. That's pretty awesome when you think of how big he really is and how much he tolerates our persistent sin and rebellion. You know, I, I sometimes when I think of, of God and, and if I was in that position, people that mock God and people that say there is no God and they flaunt their sin in, in his face. And yet he holds the very molecules of their body together. He gives them sunlight every day. He causes the, the rain and the harvest to come. He feeds them and takes care of them. And yet they stand like a little defiant ant in front of a steamroller and saying, I dare you to run over me. And that's the condition of men in rebellion to God. And yet God does not violate our free will. God appeals to our reason. And this is, remember the, the story of King Zeleucus once again, and the four principles of the atonement. One of the things that's necessary is that the sinner be inwardly transformed. And see, God can only inwardly transform us as he appeals to, to us with love and, and with ovations of mercy. And also a showing us, not a threatening us with, ju with judgment, but showing us the consequences of going our own way. But see, ultimately, it's our responsibility to choose God, isn't it? See, God can't make us go to heaven. God will not make you go to hell. Everyone will go to the place that they have chosen to go. And see, God holds our choices so significant that he will even permit people to rebel against his wise and loving rulership and even to spend eternity apart from him if they choose to do it. God will, as it were, send people to the eternal isolation ward of prison with a tear in his eye. And yet people are so significant that God will permit them to go that way if they so make that choice. As foolish and, and as unnecessary and as um, rebellious that choice is, God loves us enough to allow us to go our own way. That way, the people that are in heaven will be there because they want to be. The people that are in hell will be there because they want to be. Knowledge equals responsibility is a little maxim, I say. Knowledge equals responsibility. And when you know something, then you're responsible to live by that. As we looked at the divine order of truth way back, I think, Four, three or four weeks ago, when we accept responsibility, then we get further light and privileges. 
When, when, see, when God reveals something to us, if we accept the responsibility of that, then we get further light and privileges. But if we reject that, resp- that responsibility, then guilt and judgment comes. Not Again, remember, not because God is mad, but it's because we violated the eternal law of love. We've, eter- we've, we've violated truth. And when you violate truth, there's a consequence for, for that happening. And that consequence is the chart that we looked at last week. Do you understand that it isn't just an arbitrary thing that God is you know, just poking us because he's mad at us? But it's, it's the very essence of truth. And when truth is violated, certain consequences happen. And this, this, this gets into the realm of really being, uh, you know, reason that's really beyond us. But um, the fact that, you know, you, you ask the question, can God sin? Let me, let me tell you what I mean, lest you think I'm a heretic. The potential for sinning in God is there in the sense that there's nothing stopping him from sinning except his own moral character. Now, will God ever sin? No, because he's too smart to. But it's not that God is just locked into this being of goodness and he can do nothing else. But what locks him into his goodness and his love, justice, and all the attributes that we're talking about is the fact that he makes the loving and intelligent choice. See, God always chooses to live by truth. Therefore, he stays and remains as God and and much worthy of worship and praise and adoration on, on on our part. But it's not that God can't sin; it's that He won't sin. He's He's not that He's not that dumb to sin, you know, because He sees the eternal consequences of what sin and judgment do. That's the third point. God is too intelligent to sin. The cost is too high. The cost of violating truth is too high. The fourth principle is the question: Who created sin? Did God create sin? to think about that. Many times you may be asked that question by people and they say, well, if God's such a loving God, why did he create sin? Did God create sin? No, God did not create sin. Who created sin? Man did. See, God created man with a free will. Man could either go with God or go apart from God. That choice was there, just as the choice has always been with God. But God's wise and intelligent God, he doesn't sin. So when, when man sins, man becomes responsible for all the sin and evil that's in the universe. God's not responsible for that, because he is doing everything he can to reconcile the situation. So it's man that created sin. It's man that created the sin, and it's man who sins, and it's man who brings destruction and pain into God's universe. Yes, yes Vern. Um, then it's a little puzzling because God gave the choice to man either to sin or not to sin. And therefore, to me, it seems like there's already the the foundation for sin or the door. You know, that was our that that was there in existence. The, the potential was there, wasn't it? Yeah. The potential for sure was there. And see, anytime you have free will, don't you take a risk when there's free will? And see, if you don't have the risk, is the love doesn't mean anything, does it? See, if there's no possibility for evil, do you really have love or do you just have a robot that you've programmed to love you? And see, and it goes into the whole thing of love. In order for love to be valuable, it has to be a free choice. 
See, because I love you, it's not because I have to, it's because I want to. And, and, and there always has to be that other option of not loving you, of betraying, you know, of, of going my own way. But the, just the fact that the option is there gives the positive response significance. Understand? See, it gives it significance so that when I tell God tonight, Lord, I love you today and I appreciate your presence in my life. That means something to God because God hasn't just programmed me to do that. But here he's sitting back and he's the one that designed me and made me. He gave me a free will. And because I see the value of, of Jesus and, and, and he has shown me his grace and I am able to say, way to go, God. I really love you. That's pleasing to God because I don't have to do that. And that's what God is after, a real, true love relationship. He wants a free response from people. And that's what he intended in the beginning. He intended that everyone would love him and serve him, that no one would disobey him. See? So, yes, the potential was there, of course. But it goes back to the very nature of free will. Anytime you let loose with the concept of free will and you give somebody freedom, then there's always the risk, isn't there? There's always the risk. See, there's no – it's not a comfortable – guaranteed program situation because you're turning people loose with free wills and you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> and so God very much took a risk when he created man. And uh, even in the face of man's failure, God sent his own son to reconcile everyone back to himself. Hallelujah. Let's look at, as we begin this at Matthew 21 verses 42 through 46. Matthew 21 verses 42 46. Jesus is speaking. It's 42 through 46. I'm sorry. And Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures, the stone, which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they became afraid of the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Now, Jesus is laying a principle here. He's saying that there's a stone that's laid in Zion, and everyone that falls on the stone will be broken. But Jesus will, will take that person and put them back together. But the person that rejects the stone, the person that just says, I'm going to go my own way, it says that the stone will crush him and scatter him like dust. He'll be broken to pieces, and it will scatter him like dust. And this is a picture of the eternal moral law. The eternal law is, is, is the rock of Gibraltar of all time because it is, it is it's a part of reality. It's a part of God himself. And either we obey the law and reap the consequences of, of a reward or we disobey the law and, and, and we're broken by them. There was a chart that I saw one time and it was this little guy and he had a pick. And there was two stone tablets, like the ones that Moses brought off the mountains. And that you could tell this little guy in the cartoon was angry, and he was taking the pick, and he was ready to break the Ten Commandments. And the next frame of the cartoon showed the pick striking the Ten Commandments. But instead of the Ten Commandment plates breaking, the little man was just shattered into a whole bunch of pieces. 
And that goes to show, see, that we don't break God's law. We either obey God's law or God's law will destroy us. So you don't, you can't break the law and not get away with it because it's it's a, it's a whole part of it's just as is eternal as God is Himself. Now God has a problem. What is God going to do with moral beings that reject His loving rulership? What's God going to do with moral beings that reject His loving rulership? These moral beings have freedom of choice. And if they don't choose to obey and serve him, what's God going to do? I want to give you three principles under this. Number one, if God left them in heaven, then by character they would disrupt the harmony and beauty there. Consequently, he would not be acting justly toward the righteous saints. And what, what I'm saying by that is that if God allowed the people that are by nature sinful and evil and given over to lusts and, and sin of every kind, then if they were allowed to stay in heaven, they would just wantonly go on and hurt people and, and rip things off, and they would just spoil the harmony and the beauty there. And if God allowed that, then his justice would be violated in that he would not be acting fairly towards the saints who had been there, those who had obeyed God, and those who had uh, walked in obedience to him. You know, there's all, you always hear on the news, and, and, and this has been a story all through time, of people who are the victims of, innocent, you know, innocent victims of crime. Innocent victims of crime. I listened to the news the other night, and, and down in Miami, there's a lot of people that are arming themselves, and people are so angry at the lack of justice in that city that criminals just get their hands slapped, and, and very few of them even go to trial, that people are starting to arm themselves, and when a thief or a robber comes, they're starting to shoot them on sight. And so what they're doing is they're really taking the law into their own hands, which you can understand why people feel that way, because there's no justice in the system. Well, what happened is this guy owned this, this cafeteria, and three guys held him up. After they ran out with the money, he took his handgun out in the street, and he, he tried to shoot three of them, and he ended up missing them, but he ended up hitting uh, a girl, 17 years old, driving by, taking her grandmother to the hospital, and she was killed. And that's a victim of an innocent crime. You know, the guy wasn't intending to kill the innocent person, yet it happened. And so in the same way, see, God can't allow there to be thieves and, and unrighteous people going through heaven, dis disrupting, and all of heaven then would, uh, all the innocent people would be victims uh, of the hoodlums and unrighteous people there. So God, in his justice, can't allow these kinds of people to be in heaven. I want to read you a quote. Man is an eternal being. He belongs to the same class as God. If he dies a criminal, then he enters eternity as an eternal criminal. There must be a prison. The criminals must be segregated. If they were permitted to roam indiscriminately through eternity, they would demoralize the new heavens and the new earth. We have jails, state prisons, and federal prisons for time criminals who break the laws of man. Who can raise a protest against God if he has a prison in which are incarcerated the men who violate the laws of heaven and who are eternally criminals? And so the next time someone puts, puts, puts the question to you, well, if God was really a God of love, how could he sentence people to go to hell forever? This is an answer for that. Well, how can God, how can God permit there to be continual crime and evil in heaven and allow innocent people to continually be hurt by people's unrighteous actions? The second principle 
is that leaving the unrighteous in a place of light, purity, and holiness would be a far greater punishment than the darkness of hell. Leaving the wicked people or leaving unrighteous people in a place of light, purity, and holiness would be a far greater punishment than the darkness of hell. So in love, God has created a place of lesser torment for them. Hell is actually the most loving place for a wicked man to be. So hell is actually a place that's created out of God's love because if the wicked were allowed to remain in heaven where there's only light and purity, it would torment them and it would be far more of a greater punishment than to hide in the darkness of hell. And so actually, hell is an expression of God's love to the wicked. The third principle, and we need to address this question, is why can't God simply annihilate wicked men? Why can't God simply annihilate wicked men? At the judgment day, all those who are righteous are going to go to be with Jesus. Why can't God just say, all right, all of you unrighteous over here, and God just go, poof, and everybody's gone, and they're annihilated, never to exist again. And the reason why that can't be, now there are some churches that teach that. I'm, 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 I'm not sure exactly which ones, but I've heard this teaching from time to time. And, and, and there, again, their argument is that how can a loving God allow people to languish in torment for eternity? How can God allow people to suffer eternal punishment forever and ever and ever? That isn't the kind of loving God that I see, and we'll answer that question in a moment. Men will live forever because they're made in God's image. They cannot be destroyed. Once a human being is brought into existence by God through the procreation of human beings, he's eternal. He will live forever. And man is so significant and valuable that God will allow him the choice of rejecting him forever. And in rebellion, man becomes an eternal criminal. So it goes back to the significance of man. Man is so significant and God considers him so valuable that God will not annihilate him. That would be inconsistent with uh, God's sense of values because people are valuable. All people are valuable. Even the wicked have a value before God. And God allows us to have such a significant choice. We're so significant that he'll allow people to eternally reject him. I'm going to read you another quote. The fact is, to be locked up in a federal prison away from your loved ones with the loss of freedom and with a consciousness that all your mortal days are to be spent behind those walls, knowing that God's great out of doors is forever closed to you, that no longer can you go where you wish or come when you please, that you have lost the power of volition and of action, and that a guard with guns with a gun walks up and down the concrete corridor before your steel barred doors in a uniform that becomes hateful to you is hell enough for any man to be shut in with the incorrigibly wicked through eternity to be associated with blasphemers and murderers and the whoremongers and liars and thief and the dissolute women of all ages never to see a pure face again never to hear a baby's prattle never to hear a hymn of praise or the folklore of love songs to hear nothing but bitter, biting, hideous blasphemy, the gnawing of the tongue, the gnashing of teeth, the biting agony of long confinement is all that is necessary to make it hell for me. Therefore, God has been compelled through man's sin 
to build a complace of confinement for eternity's criminals. God is forced to, to, to find a place for these people that will not live by what is right and by what is truthful. The fourth point is that we need to look at what God has done so that everybody can be forgiven. We need to look at what God has done in sending his own son. He has sent, he has paid the ultimate price for our sins so that no man need go to everlasting fire. No man need suffer the eternal consequences of hell because Jesus has said that that he came to save the world and that all who come to him would be saved. There's not one person that cries out to the name of the Lord that will not be saved. And because God has done everything morally possible to reconcile man, when man rejects God's ultimate sacrifice and refuses to receive forgiveness for his sins, what option is there left but for God to allow people to go to the eternal isolation ward? See, it's the, the awfulness of the punishment of hell is balanced by the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus paid. The one who, remember in Revelation 5, the one who is worthy to bring all of the judgments of the, of the, of the climax of, of history, the one who is worthy to open the book with the seven seals is the lamb that was slain. And so the one who is worthy to stand as judge over all men is the one who gave his life as a ransom for all men that all may be saved. And so the only reason a man is not saved is not from God's end. It's from his own heart that he doesn't want to be saved. He doesn't want to serve Jesus. He doesn't want to live by truth and he wants to do his own thing. That's the only reason a person will go there to hell. From God's end, he has made it possible and he's made it known throughout history that he desires all men to come to himself. Listen to this warning from Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe do you think he will how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has uns- and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is the warning against rejecting God's ultimate sacrifice for us. It's no light thing to disregard Jesus Christ in what he has done for us. And so when we look at what God has done for man and how Jesus paid the ultimate price, then we can see why when people reject that, there's only one alternative left, and that's eternal separation from God. I want to look at some scriptures tonight, and you may just want to jot these references down, but I want us to look clearly at the scripture and get a picture as to what Jesus was talking about when he talked about heaven and what he talked about hell. First one is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and this is John the Baptist speaking. John the Baptist was a fiery prophet. 
Israel hadn't heard from God in over 400 years. God had been silent since the time of Malachi. And, 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 and 400 years later, God begins to speak through this, this wild man who lived in the wilderness, and he ate bugs and honey, and he wore camel skin. So he's a hairy prophet, and he, a wild man. For any of you, those, those of you who saw Jesus of Nazareth, uh, one of the most excellent portrayals of the gospel I've ever seen by a producer named Zeffirelli. And, and he portrayed John the Baptist as being this wild man in the desert. And he had to be something for people to come out in the desert to see him, you know. But people were flocking out in the desert to hear this man. And what was his message? Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, now this isn't the way to build a church, but he said, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So John the Baptist's message was a warning of the wrath to come. And he was saying to the Pharisees, he said, don't you come out here just because you're religious people, because God can raise religious people out of these stones. But if you're sincere with God, you had better bring fruit of repentance in your life. And see, it's not enough to say that I'm a children of Ab- child of Abraham, I'm a Jew, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm this, or I'm that. So that's what that would mean today. Each person has to have a direct encounter with Jesus, and he has to personally repent from his own sin. So John the Baptist, he was preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah, and his message was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 2 Corinthians 5.11 2 Corinthians 5.11, one of Paul's statements. Paul's statements. He said, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest to God, and I hope that we are manifest also in your consciences. And here Paul is saying, knowing the fear of the Lord, and, and the King James Version says that knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the eternal consequences that await men that rebel against truth and against God, We persuade men to turn to the way of righteousness, and we plead with them that they would repent of their sin and turn to God. There's an ultimate payday for all sin and unrighteousness. No one is going to get away with anything, regardless of the water gates and what goes on in the underworld and in the secret closets of people's hearts and in the secret rooms of this earth. There is a payday for all sin and righteousness, and every sin is going to receive a just recompense. Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, statement of Jesus. Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you of whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You know that Jesus spoke four times more about hell than he did about heaven? Jesus spoke more time, four more times about hell than he did about heaven. And so we need to be informed. And this is a message that needs to live in our hearts, really, because Jesus spoke much about it. In Galatians 6, 7, that says, God is not mocked, but whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. And so... If I, if I can paraphrase that, 
You don't pull any fast ones off on God. You don't get away with anything because whatever you sow, that you are going to reap. It's like the boomerang. Whatever you throw out, that's what's going to circle around and hit you in the back of the head. Everything that you met out to others, it's going to come back to you. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 7? He said that judge not lest you be judged, for in the way that you dish it out to others, that's the way it's going to be dished out to you. See, it's the law of justice, the law of sowing and reaping. So, so, so these, these warnings stand in the scripture. These are warnings against going against the law of love. The consequence of rejecting God's truth and rulership results in endless misery and torment, in woeful separation from God and his holy love. I'll repeat that. The consequence of rejecting God's truth and rulership results in endless misery and torment, in woeful separation from God and his holy love. And what I want to give you now is just a list of scriptures, and we're just very briefly going to look at these tonight, but I want us to get in our hearts the picture that the scripture paints for us of the awfulness of hell. The first one is in Matthew 25, 41. Matthew 25, 41. Jesus is speaking here and it says, And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You notice, first of all here, that man's place is not in hell. The devil was originally prepared for Satan, the one who rebelled against God originally, and all the angels that went with him, all of his cohorts. That's who hell is made for. God didn't even make hell for man. Man's place originally was not in hell, but man's place was in eternal relationship with God. And it's only by disobedience and rebellion that men end up there. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. And remember, death is not ceasing to exist, but death is separation. Death is separation. Alienation eternally would be another good synonym. Or an isolation ward would be another synonym. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is going to say to certain people who who operated in the realm of the miraculous and used the name of Jesus to cast out demons and do miracles. But Jesus was going to say to them, Depart from me, you accursed ones, because I never approved you. And what they were doing is that they were, they were practicing lawlessness. They were doing their own thing and asking God to approve of what they were doing. And imagine the, the pain of being rejected by God when God says, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so that's part of what hell is. It's being rejected by God. You know how painful it is to be rejected by a human being. Imagine the awesomeness of being rejected by the creator, by the source of life in the universe. Revelation 22, 11. Scripture says that hell will be a place of continued selfishness and sinfulness. It won't be a static place, but it'll be a place where sinfulness and selfishness is continuing to get worse and worse and worse. Can you imagine a 900-year-old nine, a Hitler? What kind of a person Hitler would have been if he would have been permitted to live 900 years? Imagine what people are going to get like eternities in, and years and years and years and years in hell. It's a place of continued sinfulness and wickedness. Jude 13 says that it's a place of black darkness. 
It's a place of black darkness. Remember, uh, I think we talked about this. Remember, a black hole typifies a selfish person. A black hole is a is a body that has gotten so compressed that the gravitational attraction is so strong that no energy escapes the force field. And so what it appears like, it, it just appears like a vacuum cleaner that goes around sucking all anything that comes within a certain distance of it. It just draws into itself and it never gives off anything. It doesn't give off any light. It looks like a void because it, everything, all the energy is being taken for itself. And that's a picture of a selfish person. You cannot ever have a relationship with a person like that because all they do is take, I want, give me. doesn't care about you, so you can never have a relationship with that person. Contrast that to the sun, our, our, our sun of our solar system. It's always giving off energy, giving light, sustaining life of others. And that's a picture of a righteous person or a picture of Jesus. But hell is a place of black darkness. John 3.16, Jesus says all those who, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So hell is a place of perishing. Matthew 17 says that there's a broad road and it leads to destruction. So hell is a place of destruction. Matthew 25, 46 calls hell as a, as a place of eternal punishment, not just lasting for a year or two, but eternal punishment. Revelation 6.10 says that hell is a, a place is a place of avenging. And that means that Hitler will get his just due in hell, and Satan will also get his just due. Everyone will get their just due in hell. And all of the evil that they caused for other people will be brought back upon their own lives as a giant boomerang. See, all, the, all of the evil that you did will, will come back upon you. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, it says it's a place of retribution. And retribution is return for evil done. It's like the negative reward for evil. So hell is a place of retribution. Luke 16.23, Jesus said that hell is a place of torment. Luke 16.24 says that hell is a place of agony. R Romans 2.9 says that it's a place of tribulation. Revelations 14.11 says that it's a place of torment with no rest. Matthew 22.13 says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Mark 9.48. Mark 9.48. It says where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So it's a place where there's just ongoing torment and pain and punishment. The fire will not be put out. And finally, in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, it describes hell as the place of the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire. In Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus is speaking here. And he says, and if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that one of your parts, your body, the one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better that 
better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, literally, that word hell means is the word Gehenna. And, and Gehenna was the refuse dump outside of Jerusalem. Everyone was familiar with it because it was a place where all of the 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 junk and refuse from the city was placed. It was a place that was infested with vermin and um, all sorts of animals like that. It burned and smoked continually. It was just an ugly place. And so when Jesus said that it's better for you to cut off your hand and lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go to Gehenna or hell, what what those people had in mind was was the, the dump. And what was put in the dump? The things that were of no longer any value. Things that were of no longer any value were, were placed there. And Jesus is saying this is that if you persist in sin and wickedness, you are going to be of no value to God or to man. And the, the only thing that is left is for, to, for you to be taken, as it were, and to be put in the dump because you are no longer fulfilling the original intention that God had for you. First Corinthians 9.27, Paul makes a reference to this. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul is speaking here about, about his ministry and also the discipline he put his own self in. And he says, But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul is saying, After I've preached to others, I, I watch my own life. So that after having saved others by speaking the word of God to them, I myself might be disqualified because I have fallen back into the trap of sin. And the word there, disqualified, is, is, like, is like a wrecked car. It's something that's of no value. And after a car has been wrecked and destroyed, what do you do? You take to the junkyard and they cut it up for scrap metal or use the parts for something else. But it's no longer valuable as a car. And that's what see what happens when we sin as human beings. We're of no longer any value to God or to, to our fellow man. And, and the only thing that God can do is to set us aside in, in, in the scrap heap because we're of no longer any value. And finally, in Daniel 12, 2, there's a very significant scripture from the Old Testament. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is speaking of the resurrection at the the end of the age. Some will awake to eternal life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Everlasting contempt. I want to give you my opinion as to what all of this means here. I believe that these are figurative descriptions of the intensity of remorse of conscience for doing evil and rejecting God. All of these descriptions that Jesus gave us in the New Testament, I don't believe they're literal, like a literal lake of fire, literal, you know, crawling with worms. I, I don't I think the picture Jesus is trying to get across to us it's that it's a place of eternal remorse and I believe that that God will not punish anyone in, in heaven or, or in hell I don't see a God you know as it were roasting people over a flame and just getting a morbid delight like going oh 
you know, just saying, oh, you, you're going to pay forever and I'm loving every minute of it. I don't see that being in the character of God. I see people left alone to their own devices and just left alone because they've rejected God. And what they have to deal with is their the eternal memories of the evil that they've done. It's living eternally with the thought of all the evil and the wickedness that you done, you've done in your life. And instead of having repented and turned to God, you blame yourself, you blame other people, and you just go through that eternal torment of why didn't I do this or doggone I'm angry at this person because, you know, you're blaming them for, for the condition that you're in and there's just no peace. And it's, it's living with the memory of what you've done forever and ever and ever. And I believe your own conscience is the source of torment because you've got to live with your own conscience. You know, people commit suicide today, don't they, to get to escape everything. That's, that's many times what suicide is, isn't it? People just cannot handle it anymore. And they think, man, I'm going to take my life. Well, I believe that when you take your life and you die – your person doesn't change any. You just leave this body and you go to be in in the other state, the spiritual state. But you're the same person. And in hell, there's no committing suicide. You can't put a gun to your head in hell because you're a spirit body and you can't cease to exist. So you have to live with yourself in hell. There's no ending it, you know, by, you know, by hanging on a rope or putting a gun to your head. But you've got to live forever and ever and ever. And so that's what my opinion about this whole business of hell is, is that people will punish themselves because of the consequence. Remember the chart again of, of the law of love? Remember that one side of all those negative things that come from disobeying the law of love? That's the result. And see, Jesus wants to save us from that. If we'll but turn away from that and, and live once again by love and truth, then he's willing to forgive us. Because he doesn't want us to eternally live with the memories of what we've done. Romans 2, verses 2 through 11. This is the scripture that's right at the top of the chart that we passed out last week. Romans 2, 2 through 11. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory, honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And so God in perfect righteousness shall judge every man for his own sin. And the agony will be in proportion to your personal guilt. See, every man will be justly treated by God. And I believe that you, are, you will suffer in hell to the degree that you are guilty. 
to the degree of your own personal guilt. Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus said that the man who knew his master's will and did not do it will receive many floggings, but the man who did not know his master's will and did not do it, he will receive but few. See, it's a matter of accountability. It's, the, it's knowledge equals responsibility. And for those who disobey their conscience, they will be more guilty than those who, were, who did things out of ignorance. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his, at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you receive good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony." And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, let him send that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they do, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, let they hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And here Jesus gives this sobering story of how after death a person is locked into the state of his righteousness or his unrighteousness. And, and Lazarus, because he was a righteous man, he was, placed, he was in the place of being comforted. And after, and, 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 the wick, and the rich man, because he lived selfishly and sensuously and for himself, he was in a place of torment. And isn't it interesting that the scripture says that, that even if someone rises from the dead, people won't listen. People won't listen to the warning. And you notice Lazarus, the rich man, when he got there, he wanted to warn the people of what was to come because it was such an awful place. Finally, Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, if any man comes preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. And the word in the Greek is the word anathema, and it's a very strong word. Let him be damned. Let him be accursed. And I think what Paul was saying there that if the love of Jesus can't change a man, and an eternity in hell won't either. If the lovely sacrifice of Jesus on the cross will not transform us, eternity in hell is not going to change a man, but it's only going to make him more and more and more entrenched in his own evil. And if a man or a woman doesn't have the good sense 
to recognize the value of Jesus Christ and to serve him with all his heart, then that man doesn't deserve to live. That man is anathema. He doesn't deserve to have any life at all because of the value of who Jesus is and the value of of who God is. Now what I want to do is I want to read you some things from a, a book that a man named Sadhu Sindar Singh wrote. This is a man that, that lived in India right at the turn of the century. And he had some visitation from angels. And the reason why I read this to you tonight is that this has helped me to understand this whole thing of holiness and sin and the consequences of sin. But I want you to test it. And if you don't agree with it, I want you to throw it out. I'm not saying you have to believe this. But this has really helped my understanding of this thing of of holiness. And so I just want you to to listen to it with an open mind. And once again, if you don't agree with it, or if, if in your mind it doesn't line up with the Scriptures, then definitely throw it out. I'm not saying that this is on the, the level of the Scripture, because everything needs to be tested by the Scripture. But it, I have found it to be really helpful. I want to read just a little bit about the man himself. It has been stated by someone that there are so many villages in India that alone that had Jesus Christ walked there and, it, and had not died, but continued on day by day walking about and visiting one village every day from his present day to our present time and never returning, he would still not have covered the villages of India. Perhaps not all of our readers are familiar with this apostle of the bleeding feet, this most interesting man, Sadhu Sindar Singh, who patterned his preaching work after Jesus, dressed in flowing robes, walked about barefoot as Jesus also most likely did. Like Jesus, Sundar could claim no earthly home, Truly, he could say that he had nowhere to lay his head. Disowned and disinherited by his Hindu relatives, when he became a Christian as a boy, as a 16-year-old boy, he learned to take persecution for the name of Jesus. Every day he walked to a new village to tell the good news he had discovered. He carried no script, no money in his wallet. In fact, he had none. Owing nothing of this world's goods and carrying nothing on his journeys except his blanket in which he slept and his little New Testament, He perhaps came closer to living up to the injunctions of Jesus to his disciples when he sent sent them forth than any man since the days of the Apostle Paul. Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus, For this purpose I have appeared to thee, to make thee a witness. So Jesus also appeared to the 16-year-old boy about to commit suicide because he he could find no peace for his soul in all the heathen religions. As Paul in initial vision as Paul's initial vision was not his last, so in the case of Sadhu Sundar Singh, it seems I can hear Jesus say, you have no earthly home or no, no earthly father. Never mind, I will be your portion and your exceeding great reward. He heard the audible voice of Jesus saying to him about these words, if you will be true to me, I will never leave you or forsake you. He had nothing but Jesus. Is it any great wonder that Jesus continued to reveal to him the spiritual world? With these few words of introduction, we will let the man speak for himself. And so I'm going to read you several pages of, of things that I have found to be very helpful. And this I'm going to begin with chapter 5, and this is called The Judgment of Sinners. Many have the idea that if they sin in secret, then none will ever know about it. But it is altogether impossible that any sin should remain hidden forever. At some time or other, it will certainly be known, and the sinner will also receive the punishment he deserves. 
Also, goodness and truth can never be hidden. In the end, they must triumph, though for a time they may not be recognized. The following incident will throw light on the state of a thief, on the state of a of the sinner. This is called a good man and a thief. Once in a vision, one of the saints recounted this story to me. Now, apparently, what happened to this guy is he was regularly, like I read in his biography. So like maybe once a month he would be in prayer and it's like he would be caught up into heaven and he would talk to angels and he would talk to Jesus and he would talk to saints, people that had died and gone to be with the Lord and, and just had a tr- tremendous conversations. And this is what's what's recorded. Late one night, a godly man had to go a distance to do some necessary work. As he went along, he came upon a thief breaking into a shop. He said to him, you have no right to take other people's property and to cause them loss. It is a great sin to do so. The thief answered, if you want to get out, the, get out of this safely, then get out quietly. If you don't, there will be trouble for you. The good man persisted in his efforts, and when the thief would not listen, he began to shout and raise the neighbors. They rushed out to seize the, th- the thief, but as soon as the good man began to accuse him, the thief retaliated and accused the good man. Oh, yes, he said. You think this fellow is very religious, but I caught him in the very act of stealing. As there were no witnesses, both were arrested and locked up in a room together while a police officer and some of his men hid themselves to listen to their conversation. Then the thief began to laugh at his fellow prisoner. Look, he said, haven't I caught you nicely? I told you at first to get out or it would be the worst for you. Now we'll see how your religion is going to save you. As soon as the officer heard this, he opened the door and released the good man with honor and a reward, while he gave the thief thief a severe beating and locked him in the prison cell. Even in this world, there is a degree of judgment between the good and bad, but full punishment and reward will be given only in the world to come. Secret Sins The following was also related to me in a vision. A man in the secret of his own room was committing a sinful act. And he thought that his sin was hidden. One of the saints said, How I wish that the spiritual eyes of this man had been open at the time. Then he would have never dared to commit this sin. For in the room there were a number of angels and saints, as well as some spirits of his dear ones, who had come to help him. All of them were grieved to see his shameful conduct. And one of them said, We came to help him, but now we will have to be his witness, to be witnesses against him at the time of his judgment. We cannot, he cannot see us, but we can see him indulging in this sin. Would that men would repent and be saved from the punishment to come. This is another one, wasted opportunities. Once I saw in the world of spirits, a spirit who, with cries of remorse, was rushing about like a madman. An angel said, in the world, this man had many chances of repenting and turned to God. But whenever his conscience began to trouble him, he used to drown its prickings in drink. He wasted all his property and ruined his family and in the end committed suicide. And now in the world of spirits, he rushes frantically about like a mad dog and writhes in remorse at the thought of his lost opportunities. We are all willing to help him, but his own perverted nature prevents him from repenting. For sin has hardened his heart, though the memory of his sin is always fresh to him. In the world, he drank himself. He drank to make himself forget the voice of his conscience, but here there is no possible chance of covering anything up. Now his soul is so naked that he himself and all the inhabitants of the spiritual world can see his sinful life. For him in his sin-hardened state, no other course is possible but that he must hide himself in the darkness with other evil spirits 
and so to some extent escape the, the torture of the light. A wicked man is permitted to enter into heaven. Once in my presence, a man of evil life entered at death into the world of spirits. When the angel and saints wished to help him, he at once began to curse and revile them and say, God is altogether unjust. He has prepared heaven for such flattering slaves as you are and cast the rest of mankind into hell. Yet you call him love. The angels replied, God is certainly love. He created men that they might live happy live forever in happy fellowship with him but men by their own obstinacy and by abuse of their free will have turned their faces away from him and have made hell for themselves god neither casts anyone into hell nor will he ever do so but man himself by being entangled in sin creates hell for himself god never created any hell just then an exceedingly sweet voice of one of the high angels was heard from above saying God gives permission that this man may be brought into heaven. Eagerly the man stepped forward, accompanied by two angels. But when they reached the door of heaven and saw the holy and light envelope place and the glorious and blessed inhabitants that dwell there, he began to feel uneasy. The angel said to him, See how beautiful a world this is. Go a little farther and look at the dear Lord sitting on his throne. From the door he looked, and then as the light of the Son of Righteousness revealed to him the impurity of his sin-defiled life, he started back in an agony of self-loathing and fled with such a per precipitancy that he did not even stop in the intermediate state of the world of spirits, but like a stone he passed through it and cast himself headlong into the bottomless pit. Then the sweet and ravishing voice of the Lord was heard saying, Look, my dear children, none is forbidden to come here, and no one forbade this man, nor has anyone asked him to leave. It was his own impure life that forced him to flee this holy place, for except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The spirit of a murderer. A man who some years before had killed a Christian preacher was bitten by a snake in the jungle and died. When he entered the world of spirits, he saw good and bad spirits all around him. And because the whole aspect of his soul showed that he was a son of darkness, the evil spirits soon had possession of him and pushed him along with them towards the darkness. One of the saints remarked, he killed a man of God by the poison of his anger, and now he is killed by the poison of a snake. The old serpent, the devil, by means of this man, killed an innocent man. Now by means of another snake, which is like him, he has killed this man, for he was a murderer from the beginning. And the spirit of the man murdered. As he was being taken away, one from among the good spirits who had come to help, help him said, I have forgiven you with all my heart. Now can I do anything to help you? The murderer at once recognized him as the same man whom he had killed some years before. Ashamed and smitten with fear, he fell down before him. And at once the evil spirits began to clamor loudly, but the angels who were standing at a distance rebuked and silenced them. Then the murderer said to the man whom he had killed, How I wish that in the world I could have seen your unselfish and loving life as I now see it. I regret that through my blindness and because your real spiritual life was screened by your body, I could not then see the beauty of your life. Also by killing you I deprived many of the blessing and benefit that you would have given them. Now I am forever a sinner in God's sight and fully deserve my punishment. I don't know what I can do except to hide myself in some dark cave because I cannot bear this light. 
In it, not only does my own heart make me miserable, but all can see every detail of my sinful life. To this, the man who had been murdered replied, You should truly repent and turn to God. For if you do, there is hope that the Lamb of God will wash you in his own blood and give you new life that you may live with us in heaven and be saved from the torment of hell. The murderer said in reply, There is no need for me to confess my sins, for they are open to all. In the world I could hide them, but not here. I want to live with the saints like you in heaven, but when I cannot bear the dimness of the self-revealing light in the world of spirits, what then will be my state in the searching brightness and glory of that light-filled place? My greatest hindrance is that though my sins, though my sins, my conscience is so dull and hardened that my nature will not incline towards God and repentance. I seem to have no power to repent left in me. Now there is nothing. Now there is nothing for it. But I shall be driven out of here forever. Alas for my unhappy state. As he said this, fear stricken, he fell down, and his fellow evil spirits dragged him away into the darkness. Then one of the angels said, See, there is no need for anyone to pronounce a sentence of doom. Of itself, the life of any sinner proves him guilty. There is no need to tell him or to put forth a witness against him. To a certain extent, punishment begins in the heart of every sinner while in the world. But here they feel the full effect of it. And God's arrangement is here is that the goats and the sheep, that is the sinners and the righteous, separate of their own accord. God created men to live in light, in which his spiritual health and joy are made permanent forever. Therefore, no man can be happy in the darkness of hell, nor because of his sin-perverted per life can he be happy in the light. So wherever a sinner may go, he will find himself in hell. How opposite is this to the state of the righteous who, freed from sin, is heaven everywhere. This is called the spirit of a liar. In the world, there was a man so addicted to lying that it had become second nature to him. When he lied and entered the world of spirits, he tried to lie as usual, but was greatly ashamed because even before he could speak, his thoughts were known to all. No one can be a hypocrite there because the thoughts of no heart can remain hidden. The soul, as it leaves the body, bears in it the imprint of all its sin, <coughs> and its very members become witnesses against it. Nothing can blot out that stain except the blood of Christ. When this man was in the world, he regularly tried to distort, distort right into wrong and wrong into right. But after his bodily death, he learned that there never is and never can be a possibility of twisting truth into untruth. He who lies and injures and deceives no one but himself. So this man, by lying, had killed the inner perception to truth which he once possessed. I watched him as inextricably tangled in his own deceit, he turned his face away from the light from above and hurried far down to the darkness below, where none could see his filthy love of lying except those spirits who were like in nature to himself. For truth is always truth, and it alone gave this man the sentence on his falseness and condemned him as a liar. The spirit of an adulterer. I saw an adulterer who had shortly before arrived in the world of spirits. His tongue was hanging out like a man consumed by thirst, and his nostrils were distended, and he beat his arms about if a kind of fire burned within him. His appearance was so evil and loathsome that I revolted at looking at him. All the accomplishments of luxury and sensuality had, left, had been left behind in the world, and now, like a mad dog, he ran frantically about and cried, Cursed on this life! 
There is no death here to put an end to all this pain. And here the spirit cannot die. Otherwise, I should again kill myself as I did with a pistol in the world in order to escape from my troubles there. But this pain is far greater than the pain of the world. What should I do? Saying this, he ran towards the darkness where many other like-minded spirits are and there disappeared. One of the saints said, not, o- not only is an evil act sin, but an evil thought and an evil look is also sin. This sin is not confined only to trafficking with strange women, but excess in animalism in relation to one's wife is also sin. A man and his wife are truly do- joined together, not for sensualism, but for mutual help and support, and that they and their children may spend their lives in the service of mankind and for the glory of God. But he who departs from this aim in life is guilty of the adulterer's sin, the soul of a robber. A robber died and entered the world of spirits. At first he took no interest in his state or in the spirits about him, but as his habit was, he, he at once set about helping himself to the valuables of the place. But he was amazed that in the spirit world the very things seemed to be speaking and accusing him of his unworthy action. His nature was so perverted that he neither knew the true use of these things, nor was he fit to use them rightly. In the world, his passions had been so unbridled that, for the most trifling cause, he in his anger had killed or wounded any who had offended him. Now in the world of spirits, he began to act the same way. He turned on the spirits who came to instruct him as if he would tear them to pieces like a savage dog will do, even in the presence of its master." On this one, on this, one of the angels said, If spirits of this kind were not kept down in the darkness of the bottomless pit, they would cause immense harm wherever they might go. This man's conscience is so dead that even after he has reached the world of spirits, he fails to recognize that by murdering and robbing in the world, he has wasted his own spiritual discernment and life. He killed and destroyed others, but in reality he has destroyed himself. God alone knows if this man and those who are like him will remain in torment for ages or forever. After this, the angels appointed to the duty took him and shut him down in the darkness from which he is not permitted to come out. The state of evildoers in that place is so terrible and so inexpressibly fierce is this torment that those who see them tremble at the sight. Because of the limitations of our worldly speech, we can only say this, that wherever the soul of a sinner is always and in every way there is nothing but pain which ceases not for a moment a kind of lightless fire burns forever and torments these souls but neither are they altogether consumed nor does the fire die out a spirit who is watching what had just happened said who knows but that in the end this may not be a cleansing flame in the dark part of the world of spirits which is called hell there are many grades and planes And the particular one in which any spirit lives in suffering is dependent on the quality and the character of his sins. It is a fact that God made all in his own image. And yet by people's connection with sin, they have disfigured this image and have made it unbeautiful and evil. They have indeed a kind of spiritual body, but it is exceedingly loathsome and frightful. And if they are not restored by true repentance and the grace of God while on earth, then this fearful form... Then, then in this fearful form, they must remain in torment forever and ever. The state of the righteous and their glorious end. Heaven or the kingdom of God begins in the lives of all true believers in this world. Their hearts are always filled with peace and joy, no matter what persecutions and troubles they may have to endure. For God, who is the source of all peace and life, dwells in them. 
Death is no death for them, but a door by which they enter forever into their eternal home. Or we may say that though they have already been born again into the eternal kingdom, yet when they leave the body, it is for them not the day of death, but the day of birth into the spiritual world. And it is for them a time of superlative joy, as the following incidents will make clear. The death of a righteous man. An angel related to me how a true Christian who had wholeheartedly served his master for 30 years lay dying. A few minutes before he died, God opened his spiritual eyes that even before leaving the body, he might see the spiritual world and that he might tell those tell what he saw to those about him. He saw that heaven had been opened for him and a party of angels and saints was coming out to meet him and the doors and at the door, the savior with outstretched hands was waiting to receive him. As all this broke upon him, he gave such a shout of joy that those at his bedside were startled. What a joy it is for me, he exclaimed. I have long been waiting that I might see my Lord and go to him. Oh, friends, look at his face, all lighted up by love, and see that company of angels that has come for me. What a glorious place it is. Friends, I am setting out for my real home. Do not grieve over my my departure, but rejoice. One of those present at his bedside said quietly, his mind is wandering. He heard the low voice and said, no, it is not. I'm quite conscious. I wish you could see this wonderful sight. I am sorry it is hidden from your eyes. Goodbye. We will meet again in the next world. Saying this, he closed his eyes and said, Lord, I commend my soul into thy hands. And so fell asleep. As soon as his soul had left his body, angels took him in their arms and were about to go off to heaven. But he asked them to delay for a few minutes. He looked at his lifeless body and at his friends and said to the angels, I did not know the spirit after leaving the body could see his own body and friends. I wish my friends could see me as well as I can see them. Then they would never count me as dead nor mourn for me as they do. Then he examined his spiritual body and found it beautifully light and delicate and totally different from his gross material body. On that, he began to restrain his wife and children who were weeping and kissing his cold body. He stretched out his delicate spiritual hands and began to explain to them with great love and to press them away from it. But they could neither see him nor hear his voice. And as he tried to remove his children off his body, it seemed as if his hands passed right through their bodies as if they were air, but felt nothing at all. Then one of the angels said, come, let us take you to your everlasting home. Do not be sorry for them. The Lord himself and we also will comfort them. Their separation is for but a few days. Then in company with the angels, he set out for heaven. They had gone forward only a little way when one of the band of angels met them with cries of welcome. Many friends and dear ones who had died before him also met him. And on seeing them, his joy was further increased. On reaching the gate of heaven, the angels and the saints stood in silence on the other side. He entered and in the doorway was met by Christ. At once he fell at his feet to worship him, but the Lord lifted him up and embraced him and said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And at that, and at that, the man's joy was indescribable. From his eyes, tears of joy began to flow, and the Lord in great love wiped them away. And to the angels he said, Take, to him, take him to that most glorious mansion that from the beginning has been prepared for him. Now the spirit of this man of God still had held to the earthly idea that to turn his back on the Lord as he went off with the angels would be a dishonor to him. 
He hesitated to do this, but when at last he turned his face towards the mansion, he was astonished to see that wherever he looked, he could see the Lord. For Christ is present in every place and is seen everywhere by saints and angels. In addition to the Lord, he was delighted to see that on every side there were surroundings that filled him with joy, and that those who are lowest in rank meet without envy those who are higher, and that those whose position is more exalted count themselves fortunate to be able to serve their brethren in the lower positions, because this is the kingdom of God in his love. In every part of heaven there are superb gardens which all the time produce every variety of sweet and luscious fruit and all kinds of scented flowers that never fade. In them, creatures of every kind give praise to God unceasingly. Birds in beautiful hue raise their sweet songs of praise, and such is the sweet singing of angels and saints, and that on hearing their song, a wonderful sense of rapture is experienced. One may look Wherever one may look, there is nothing but a, but scenes of unbounded joy. This, in truth, is the paradise that God has prepared for those who love him, where there is no shade of death, nor error, no, nor sin, nor suffering, but abiding peace and joy. Then I saw this man of God examining his appointed mas- mansion from a great distance. For in heaven all things are spiritual, and the spiritual eye can be seen by praising and thanking Jesus in an unending state of joy. When this man of God, in company with angels, arrived at the door of his appointed mansion, he saw written on it, in shining letters, the word welcome. And from the letters themselves, welcome, welcome, in audible sound, was repeated and repeated again and again. And when he had entered his home, to his surprise, he found the Lord there before him. And at this, his joy was almost more than we can, we can describe. And he exclaimed, I left the Lord's presence here and came at his command, but I find that the Lord himself is here to dwell with me. And in the mansion was everything that his imagination could have conceived, and everyone was ready to serve him. And the nearby houses, and in the nearby houses, saints and like, those like-minded to himself lived in happy fellowship. For this is the heaven, for this heavenly house, is the kingdom which has been prepared for the saints from the foundation of the world. And this is the glorious future that awaits every true follower of Christ. One final story is called The Proud Minister and a Humble Workman. A minister who, who looked upon himself as an exceedingly learned and religious man died at a ripe old age. Without a doubt, he was a good man. When the angels came to take him to the place appointed for him by the Lord in the world of spirits, they brought him into the intermediate state and left him there with many other good spirits who had lately arrived in charge of those angels who are appointed to instruct good souls while they themselves went back to usher in another good spirit. In that intermediate heaven, there are grades upon grades right up to the higher heavens, and the grade into which any soul is admitted for instruction is determined by the real goodness of his life on earth. When the angels who had put his, this minister in his grade came back and, con, and conducting another soul for whom they had gone, they brought him up beyond the grade which the minister was on their way up to a higher plane. Seeing, them, the, seeing this, the minister in a blustering voice called out, What right do you have to leave me halfway up to that glorious country while you take this other man all the way up near to it? Neither in holiness nor in anything else am I in any way less than this man or than yourselves. The angels replied, There is no question here of great or small, or of more or of less, but a man is put into whatever grade he has merited by his life and faith. You are not yet quite ready for that upper grade, so you will have to remain here for a while and learn some of the things that our fellow workers are appointed to teach. 
Then when the Lord commands us, we will with great pleasure take you up, take you with us to that higher sphere. He said, I have been teaching people all my life about the way to reach heaven. What more do I have to learn? I know all about it. Then the instructing angel says, they must go up now and we can't detain them, but we will answer your question. My friend, do not be offended if we speak plainly, for it is for your good. You think you are here alone, but the Lord is also here with you, though you cannot see him. The pride that you display when you said, I know all about it, prevents you from seeing him and from going up higher. Humility is the cure for this pride. Practice it and your heart's desire will be granted. After this, one of the angels told him, This man who has just been promoted above you was no learned or famous man. You did not look at him very carefully. He was a member of your own congregation. People hardly knew him at all, for he was an ordinary working man and had little leisure from his work. But in his workshop, many knew him as an industrious and honest worker. His Christian character was recognized by all who came into contact with him. In the war, he was called up for service in France. There one day, as he was helping a wounded comrade, he was struck by a bullet and killed. Though his death was sudden, he was ready for it, and he did not have to remain in the intermediate state as long as you will have to do. His promotion depends not on favoritism, but on his spiritual worthiness. His life of prayer and humility while he was in the world prepared him for a great extent for the spiritual world. Now he was rejoicing at having reached his appointed place and is thanking and praising the Lord who, in his mercy, has saved him and has given him eternal life. You see how so important it is of what what our moral character is like. See the way our, our the choices that we make are determining what kind of person we are. And after we go to be with Jesus, you know, it's whatever we are, that's that's the rank that we're going to be put in. And for those who don't know God, those who live selfishly and, and wickedly they're going to be justly recompensed. And you see, the judgment is, is already written on their very nature. Because sin, the, the, the scars of sin are, are placed upon our lives right when we do them. And if we persist in them, we just get more wicked and more wicked so that we're casting ourselves into that, that mold of evil and darkness. The good news is that wherever we're at tonight, we can cry out to Jesus and Jesus, through his blood, can cleanse us from all that. So that's why the person that accepts the Lord on his deathbed, Jesus will take him if the guy repents. But he's going to have a long way to go when he gets there, isn't he? He's going to have to learn a lot. And see, that's what we need to see now is that, is that we're being prepared for each other. We don't share these things to scare people into heaven or scare them into hell. Well, scare them into heaven, I guess. Because there's only one thing that will ultimately touch people, and that's the kindness and goodness of God. The fear of hell will not bring people out of that won't keep them into the kingdom it's the message of god's love and forgiveness and you see you can put a cross right between those two things because jesus died to take all those penalties of disobedience he took upon himself our sin so that all of us could come and experience the reward of life see jesus took all the negative penalties upon himself so no man has to be in hell that's the good news. No man has to be there. And see, since God has made the way back to himself, those who reject that way, he must, he must put them in hell. See, he must do that. 
And perhaps that will help you explain that to people and, and also understand yourself. You see where we need to hate sin? We need to prepare ourselves for that, for our eternal home in heaven, that eternal ministry in the light. And we do that now by walking in humility and service. And we do that by following the Lord fully during this short period of preparation called life, preparation for our eternal home. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.